Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for joining us here on Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron with our co-host, Carol Zernio, a nationally known gerontologist, a graduate of Trinity University, and she also serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, former board chair, and is on the board of the National Council on Aging. That's a lot of aging stuff. There's a lot of age. Yeah, I think I got older just while you were saying that, actually. <laughs> well, well, we want people to know that uh, you've got all those credentials. A- aging, aging are us. Aging are us. I was, you know, I was, I was recently at my um, 40th high school reunion. There we oh, go. We'll just be. confess. We'll can't confess. 40th. Uh, and I felt so bad because I had someone who had been trying to get in touch with me in the months leading up that was a friend of mine who I assumed wanted to talk to me about the reunion and I knew that I was going to see them at the reunion and somehow time slipped by and then I found out that they knew I worked in aging and they wanted me to talk about their mother who they were having problems with so I felt so terrible that I hadn't gotten back with her sooner Um, you know but sometimes on the airplanes it's like if you're sitting next to the doctor and the doctor doesn't want to tell anybody they're the doctor because you know you know it's great he's trapped you know I said call me anytime you know play and just but say don't send me no saying how how are you? Say, I'm, I want to talk to you about my mother because I will totally, you know, that's the way to get me to jump faster. Exactly. You know, I'm always happy to help out with that. Well, I like that. And we're going to be talking in just a couple of moments to an expert in aging and caregiving. Dr. Bruce Chernoff will join us, CEO of the SCAN Foundation. And they've been looking at caregiving millennials, which is a fascinating topic. Well, the SCAN Foundation, they are a heavy hitter. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Chernoff years ago after he did um, work on the panel to study for uh, long-term care, and he he chaired con- a federal panel, and he convened um, a whole group of uh, aging professionals from around the country after that report came out to talk about implementation and and prioritize and and really talk about the healthcare industry and the changes that needed to happen. So he's definitely a, a leader, um, and the nice thing is is he understands all of us who are caregivers. Uh, physician, but really gets it, and the work that they're doing, helping us to identify and reach out to younger caregivers who we don't really think about all the time is great. And we'll be talking with him in just a couple of moments. But before we do, here's a question for you. Who smokes more dope, marijuana, kids or grandpa? That's a, you know, that's a great question. And there was recently an article in the Washington Post that you and I both saw, and we both cut it out, and it said, talk to your grandparents about marijuana before somebody else does. So surprise, with legal marijuana in so many states, the boomers are back. Um, more older people are using marijuana than younger people. And that shift probably happened a couple of years ago, but it is official now. Um, Older people smoke more dope. And they don't need a dealer anymore in most states. Just go to the store. Well, you know, there are so many states that have um, legal recreational marijuana Mm -hmm. now. And it would make sense that there are more adults than kids because the kids define 12 to 17. It's illegal for them. But if it's legal... For adults, they don't have to hide it. They can go to the store, you know, get their little card, um, pick out their products. Uh, and I and I do know several folks in those states who are doing it. And I think that, you know, it's um, 
the interesting part of this article was the finding that states that have looser marijuana laws where the you know people can get access to marijuana actually have less opioid addiction. Wow. Which is fascinating. It is. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so I think the highest use is really is in that boomer group that it's the younger old people that age uh, 55 to 65. But the 65 and up, it's, it used to be zero, and now it's like 2.4%. There's a lot of chronic pain, and a lot of them say it is their physician, their, real, their primary care physician, who told them they might want to try it. Um, we talked to a caregiver once who he believed that uh, marijuana was good for him and the care recipient. So his his wife had Alzheimer's and he got a hit in the morning and she got a hit in the morning and then later in the afternoon. And he said that's what got him through his day, wow. which was kind of fascinating. You know, the, there of course, there are concerns about marijuana use. We're not advocating. We're not saying yay or nay. We're just stating the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Just the facts. Um, that uh, with the older older persons in marijuana, they do find that more people who, who regularly use marijuana at, in later life also have higher rates of nicotine dependence. So they're smoking, cocaine use, and abusing prescription mm. drugs. So... Um, for those that are legally using marijuana, we want to keep it light and legal uh, and hopefully not go into other things. I interviewed a, a physician the other day, a PCP, who said that sometimes she'll pick up marijuana uh, in blood test screening for their patients. Uh, and she says to them, look, I'm not turning you in or anything in a state like Texas where it's not legal. Uh, but she says, just be careful. And don't drive. And don't drive. Right. Don't drive. Right. I think there's some increase if you look at younger folks and, and, and driving. And they do it for self-medicating purposes. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, that's kind of an evolving story. It'll be interesting to see because there are also some studies where they're using, they're getting the medicinal properties of marijuana without getting the high. Right. Without the parts of the marijuana that give you the high. And so those have, you know, those can help in seizures, control pain, reduce anxiety, um, particularly in hospice, it can be recommended. So I think that there's, you know, we may see this, this science evolve around marijuana, um, but there's always, you know, the boomers, you know, they haven't changed. They're just picking up where they left off in their youth in many cases. This is Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. <coughs> Pardon me. Talk to me for a minute about antidepressants and people with Alzheimer's. Well, you know, the, the high comorbidity, meaning you get both Alzheimer's and depression, is very, very, very common. And I, was, I must admit, I was a little disappointed to look at this study. Um, it was the Cochrane Dementia and Cognitive Improvement uh, Group that um, had done a study on antidepressants, and they were looking at people that got a placebo, meaning like, you know, the little sugar pill versus real antidepressants. And what they found was that there was six to nine months of use. There was little to no difference for people with Alzheimer's. And those that did get a real drug actually were more likely to drop out of treatment and to have at least one unwanted side effects because medications often do have side effects. And so this was a study of 1,592 people over the age of 75, but they, they recommended really talk to your doctor. If your doctor is recommending an antidepressant for the person with Alzheimer's, their research says it really is not making a, a big enough difference considering the downside of some of the side effects uh, that they felt like maybe it wasn't worth it. What else can you do? 
for someone who has Alzheimer's well, and is depressed? You know, um, that's a very good question. I think that would be a question you would ask your doctor. Um, we do know that, you know, that physical activity, sunshine, you know, a schedule, um, diet can also improve depression. So, you know, you're always going to need a toolbox when you're working with somebody with dementia. Exercise. Yeah, exercise and sunshine actually, um, you know, can help with the sundowning, too, and some of the negative behaviors. If you can get people where they can get some physical activity and get the sunshine so they know it's daytime, keeps them from wandering around at night so much. And for those who don't know about sundowning? The the sundowning is is fairly common among people with Alzheimer's where they become very restless and and wander and walk around. I know my own mother. As the sun goes down. As the sun goes down, yeah, at night. And so my mom would, and my mother-in-law, both with Alzheimer's, would wander around the house. I mean, I would just, you know, have to go to bed because I couldn't stay awake long enough for them to stop wandering around the house. Luckily, I wasn't the only one in the house. um, And they, at that time, were not, you know, a flight risk. Uh, But when she became a flight risk was about the time my mother did move into a facility. Mm -hmm. To keep her safe. Yeah, to keep her safe. So it's a a concern. Folks who are uh, thinking about Social Security as they turn 65 or so. Uh, is it complicated? It's so complicated, and people don't think it is. It's the really, you know, oh, that's too bad. So I actually bought this book for my husband, uh, and he liked it, and it was mentioned in this article out of Next Avenue. It's called Get What's Yours, The Secrets to Maxing Out Your Social Security um, by Philip Muller, and he's the gentleman that works uh, answers questions on the PBS News Hour. We mentioned in an earlier show he can answer those questions. But you know you, what you need to understand is that there are things you know when you take your Social Security, uh, if you are a spouse or a survivor, that it's you know it makes an impact. And so I recommend you know going to one of the calculators. Either AARP has a calculator. You can go to the Social Security website. Plug in how old you are, your husband is, then, you know, look at what your benefits are, but do not go blindly into claiming your Social Security. Those who wait to age 70 to claim it, which is the maximum, get 75% more money than those that take it at age 62. And there are literally a thousand variables. Um, If you are a spouse and claiming your Social Security, all the different things about when to take it and how much to take. I know my own husband delayed taking Social Security because he's older than me so that his benefits are higher about the same time we're both retired. And both he didn't look old enough, Ernie. He well, found the fountain of youth. He found the fountain of youth. That's the same youth. husband, right? It is the same husband. <laughs> same one. He looks like he's early <laughs> early 50s. I confess. It's, I promise it's the same one. <laughs> Early 50s, easily. Yeah, so, wow. you know, but but Social Security is so hard to get your questions answered, and that's why I say hmm. uh, go to the website. Uh, if you There are some good websites that you can pay that are even better than the free ones that like AARP. Uh, Maximize My Social Security is a site. Social Security Solutions is a site. You do have to pay for those, but they're better about really getting down to the nitty-gritty of how much you're going to get. Wow. But here's your questions. Do you know um, if you're entitled to spousal benefits? Do you know um, how the spousal and survivor benefits are determined? And if you don't know, uh, find somebody who does. Perfect. Got about a minute left. It turns out that tremors are not always Parkinson's. Well, you know, this was an article, so I always think of Katherine Hepburn. Right. And, you know, she had that tremor in her hands and in her heads and, and actually in her voice. 
and I always thought that it was Parkinson's. But it turns out that there is a condition that is more benign, it's not Parkinson's, um, that she had, and it's called an essential tremor. And apparently about 1% of the population have it. I think I know some other folks who probably have wow. it um, in my life. Uh, and it's benign because it's not life-threatening. But it can be... Um, annoying as Annoying. Hell. Right. Um, <laughs> in, in the short term, you know, this article, this, uh, this came from the Washington Post, and they were saying that alcohol can temporarily reduce the tremor. And so, but it's not the long-term solution. There are medications for it. But he was, you know, the person that wrote this was a physician. He said, you know, the one, once the woman realized she would, did not have Parkinson's, she was so excited. You know, it's annoying to get that first glass of wine up to your lips. But after that, she's fine. Um, so, but just know that if you have the tremor, it may not be Parkinson's. There are other conditions that cause those tremors. So get it checked out so you don't, so you know, and you don't worry. Up next, Dr. Bruce Chernoff. CEO of the SCAN Foundation joins us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Well, as we were promising, we're delighted to welcome to our Caregiver SOS Honor Hotline, Dr. Bruce Chernoff. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Dr. Chernoff is CEO of the SCAN Foundation, and we're going to find out in just a moment what that represents. And Dr. Chernoff, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me. So the SCAN Foundation, what is it? And tell us about your campaign for caregiving millennials. Absolutely. So the SCAN Foundation is one of the largest uh, foundations in the country focused exclusively on aging healthcare policy and health systems transformation. And we really believe that we just need to transform the way healthcare is delivered and care in general is delivered because all older adults should live with dignity, choice, and independence. And that person first focus is critical for us. We're all going to need a little bit of help as we age, pretty much, um, and having a circle of support is incredibly important. Um, some people call those caregivers. Many people who are involved in helping a loved one or a family uh, member or a friend don't even think of themselves as caregivers necessarily, but it's a big part of what we all do um, within our own families and communities, and that led us to realize that um, we need to sort of break the myth of what a caregiver is and go beyond just kind of the simple stereotypes. And our work showed us that uh, millennials and Gen Xers um, are both really important caregivers today within their own families and communities, that a third of millennials today are actually actively caregiving, and another third expect that they will be in the next five years. So this isn't something that happens 
somewhere later in their lives, it is part of who they are today and who they'll be tomorrow. Now, for those who may have just joined us, I want to give you a little background on Dr. Chernoff. He earned his medical degree from UCLA, undergraduate study at Harvard University. Currently, Dr. Chernoff is an adjunct professor of medicine at UCLA, completed his residency and chief residency in internal medicine, as well as a fellowship in medical education at UCLA. And for a period of time, Dr. Chernoff, you served as the director and chief medical officer for the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services. And wow, you must have seen a whole lot. It, uh, it, it, it's a wonderful, important delivery system. It's the second largest public uh, uh, hospital delivery system in the country. Five hospitals, uh, millions of outpatient visits every year in a really big city. Um, lots of work to do um, and a great organization. Uh, it, it's, it's probably akin to a small state. Um, everything in Los Angeles, you know, there's so many people. I had the pleasure to work in that area for a while. Uh, and it, it, it really is the diversity of the population is amazing. So you were talking about millennials and the caregivers. Now tell us, I suppose the millennials know who they are. But tell us again, who are the millennials? Because we're talking about a younger population. We are. So, you know, they're um, basically in the 18 to 34-year-old or so age group. And um, these are folks who are finishing college, finishing um, uh, uh, or beginning college, finishing college, starting lives, starting families, first jobs, second jobs, but they're but they're launching their adult lives really, um, and uh, in the same breath, they are a huge part of uh, of support within well, their own families and communities. And so, people that are younger that become caregivers, there there's like a there's a social disconnect. Because all of a sudden, when they take on that caregiving role, they're not doing the things that the people, other people their age necessarily are doing. So it's, it's difficult enough when you're middle age or an older person. But with a younger, the younger group, there's that disc, really that disconnect. I, I'm not doing what my friends are doing. I'm not on the same track. And it may be harder uh, for some of their friends and family members to understand what it is that they're really doing with their time. Now, why doesn't Johnny come out with us anymore? What's right. he doing? You're not, any, you're not any fun. Not that being, not, not that it's all about fun, but it's, it's, it's a disconnect. No, you're absolutely right. I think um, you know it, it is a a hidden responsibility, and so one of the things I, I really appreciate about uh, your show and this chance to to chat is. There are a lot of people with this hidden responsibility. There are a lot of, um, of uh, young folks who are trying to um, uh, live three-dimensional lives, and part of that means um, giving a little bit of care to a family member or a friend. I will say that there, this all falls on a spectrum, right? So um, it may be that for a younger person, uh, one of the things we found in our own work is that some, for some younger people, they don't even view themselves as caregivers per se. That that's a, it's, can be kind of a loaded word, and that you know, helping look after grandma after school when, when they're home from school before the parents are home. That's just part of living in a in a multi generational household, and that's just what you do. But you are you're both spot on that for uh, you know a significant subset subset of millennials the responsibilities can be fairly significant, right? And they may be choosing between not just, you know, fun and being um, an, uh, a key caregiver, but it may impact job choices, um, 
yeah, you know, uh, decisions within one's own family as they try to start their own families, for example. So it, it can be significant. So We're interviewing Dr. Bruce Chernoff, who's the CEO of the SCAN Foundation. If you just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron with our co-host Carol Zerniel. So you mentioned some research that the SCAN Foundation um, conducted that led to this campaign, Do You Give a Care? You know, were, what were some of the surprises within that research? You know, besides the numbers, was there anything else that led you to really want to look at caregiving millennials? That, that's such a wonderful question. I really appreciate it, Carol. I think, you know, uncovering the mysteries is um, one of the things we need to do here. And what millennials told us, we did a, a very large national poll that helped uh, inform our thinking here. And there's also great work that's been done by others like um, AARP in this space. And I think what's very clear is that, well, overall, millennials maybe aren't um, providing quite as much care as, say, their parents maybe are for, you know, for the next generation up. Um, they uh, uh, are very stressed about it, and they feel um, kind of disconnected from resources and somewhat isolated, uh, uh, back to Ron's earlier point in question. And so I think um, it caused us to realize, A, this is something that lots and lots of millennials and, frankly, Gen Xers are doing. B, they're, they're juggling a lot, um, uh, and often without a lot of uh, reserve underneath them, or much of a you know, family or economic safety net underneath them so early in their careers and lives. No. And, and, that, um, they're, and that they feel like they're alone when they're really not. Do they self-identify as caregivers? Again, a, an, another very thoughtful question, Ron. Sometimes yes and sometimes no. So for, for the three of us, the word caregiving makes a lot of sense, and from a policy perspective, we use it all the time. But one of the things that we found uh, in our research with millennials is, like I was saying earlier, sometimes they just see it as being part of their family, and caregiving sort of connotes something that, you know, your older siblings do or your parents are doing for your grandparents, right? It, it's it maybe feels an order of magnitude greater. But the reality is once you are a caregiver, you know, you probably are in, in, at some level for, you know, maybe the rest of your life at some level, for, you know, for different family members at different points in time. And so, um, yeah, so we need to kind of break the mythology that it's something that somebody over there is doing, doing and it's actually something we're all doing at some level in our own families, in our own way. Well, I would love for, you know, millennials, Gen Xers, the creative the younger folks to come up with a word besides caregivers. We are all desperate for a word that will communicate exactly what those activities are uh, besides those long paragraphs that describe the, the activities that we actually do. And as we discovered in Spanish, there is no word caregiver. There, there really isn't a word that, that, that translates totally well. totally right. That's, that's such a great, it's such a great observation um, that really there isn't, uh, there isn't an equivalent translation in Spanish and frankly in many other languages um, and not, not unique to just Spanish. And while obviously there's nothing at all wrong with the word caregiver and it's a very powerful and meaningful word, I do think coming up with a better uh, or, or uh, not a, maybe a better set of descriptors or a fuller range of descriptors that, um, that, um, uh, that open up the conversation, um, particularly, you know, each, each generation, you know, approaches things differently than the generation before it. And if there is a, a way to frame it that is more accessible, um, 
it's it's something that's top of mind for us. So, in your did your research look at all about how millennials use resources? Are they more aware, less aware? Did you look at any of that? Because I'm I'm thinking about their their you know the comfort level being online. So, is the caregiving experience changing, or is it different for younger caregivers? It's a you know, it's a really important question, and our research uh, only touched on it, or this phase of our research really only touched on it um, rather lightly. I think what, what our work has shown us so far, however, is part of that stress, the, the fact that they feel more stressed than um, caregivers in, in other um, generations, is uh, just trying to sort of balance all the things in their lives. But part of it is sort of a lack of sense for what the resources are. So I think some of this is skill over time. But you're also right that uh, millennials are far more likely to um, look for solutions and tools and resources online. And that, frankly, um, you know, community, you know, a, a community of like-minded individuals is incredibly important. So kind of one's grapevine or one's social network can be really, really helpful. I think we've all had the experience in all different facets of our lives. Uh, I'm sure you both have experienced this where you go on Google to look something up and, you know, you're pleasantly told your search term got you 5 million results. And so the Google Firehose can be rich in terms of content, but challenging in terms of usefulness. And so I think one of the things that uh, we see in millennials is a real hunt for more curated resources and resources that are sort of validated within the, their um, circle of support, family and friends, or the community that they come from. You know, is, is it culturally responsive? Are there people who speak your language for whatever service um, or product you're looking for? All really important questions and places where more work needs to be done. Stay with us just a minute. We're going to come right back to you. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we're talking with Dr. Bruce Chernoff about caregiving and the SCAN Foundation. And maybe we can talk a little bit about why in the world this work matters right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. This is a fascinating conversation. If you're just joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air, I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel, and we are talking with Dr. Bruce Chernoff, CEO of the SCANT Foundation, about caregiving and millennials and a whole lot more. And Dr. Chernoff, when you think about all of this, why does any of this matter? Oh, well, Ron, I think we should all be building the world we all want. I, this, this is, I think, um, uh, s- something that we all will face. Um, one of the things that's guaranteed is that we're all going to get older. Um, the data is pretty clear that as we age, um, almost all of us will have um, some need, could be big, could be, could be, big, could be small as we age. Um, and I think to a one of us, we all want to live in the home and community of our choice. We want to live with dignity, choice, and respect. And um, I think sort of Building, embracing the fact that this is part of being an adult and part of uh, our culture and society is really important. 
and um, making the invisible visible, honoring it, supporting it, and respecting it is a very important part of our work. You know, one of the things, and Carol, you've talked about this, uh, is while most folks want to stay home, live independently, age in place, it turns out not to be very productive from a socializing standpoint. So that's that's a good point, and part of why we say um, sort of age in community is community means different things to different people at different points in their lives. So I think, um, you know, for many of us, it sort of sounds like, well, I, you know, I, I want to live in the home I live in now, or the apartment I live in now, or, you know, I raised my kids here, and, you know, I go to church over there, and it's, you know, this, this, this is my uh, community, and I totally respect that. But what's very, very interesting is that as people age and things change, that two-story house where you raised your kids may seem a lot tougher to take care of. And actually, sort of the trade-off being able to enjoy yourself and, and, and feeling like uh, you're connected but still having to take care of an apartment or a home can be really challenging. And I do think that that's why people choose to move to different kinds of environments that either provide more opportunity for socialization um, or, uh, uh, you know, better access to services. And sometimes those moves are as simple as, you know, they, they sound big, but they make lots of sense. So it may be, you know, moving across the country, that sounds really hard. But if you're moving in with a son or a daughter and, and their kids and grandkids, that might be a really important, um, uh, you know, family bond that's, that's far more important, say, than being in the house where the kids grew up. So I, I think the idea that um, community changes over time is really okay. Um, it's just a hard one for us to think about over decades and decades. So when you think about that, the, the your wish list and that dream of, of the, the way we want things to become as we get older, and you think about millennials, um, we don't want to get into politics, but policy. So are there, is there some part of this campaign and this thinking that um, caregiving, whether millennials or, or middle-aged caregivers, that there is work to be done within healthcare systems to make life easier for family members who are caring for someone who is chronically ill? The answer is absolutely yes. There are important policy things that we need to do to reflect who we are today as a country. So most, almost all of our sort of public programs, whether they're, for example, Medicare and Medicaid, as well as the Older Americans Act, which funds a lot of aging services like Meals on Wheels, for example, they were built and created in 1965. And the average life expectancy was 69 in 1965. And most people died of, you know, an acute medical problem or after a, you know, a short illness, say after a stroke or a heart attack. You know, flash forward all these years, and people are living well into their late 70s or early 80s. We're far more likely to live with chronic medical problems and functional limitations. So the world has really changed, and there's probably a couple of ways that um, we're, we're still in need of major policy uh, changes that sort of bring us up to current. You know, for me, one is we need to have the healthcare system be far more accountable for recognizing caregivers in the circle of support that care for somebody when they're um, uh, receiving services in the healthcare system. So to be specific, when somebody is, say, discharged from the hospital, 
the do- and I'm a physician, so but I firmly believe the doctors and the hospitals and nurses need to do a far better job and be held accountable for educating caregivers before somebody goes home, not just assuming that, you know, they they completed the checklist and put it in somebody's hand uh, who just spent four or five days in the hospital, and somehow they're going to remember all the things they need to do when they go home. So, so, so the piece I, of paper is not enough. That little pink piece of paper, piece of, that pink piece of paper is not enough. Absolutely not. And I think that it's a place where, and having run a very large health system, I believe that's a kind of accountability we should see in health systems. Second area that I think that's really important for particularly for millennials and Gen Xers is um, a little bit of uh, a flexibility at work can be incredibly helpful. And to the degree that um, family and medical leave can be flexed in a way that people can do a little bit of caregiving but still be productive employees is, I think, a really important opportunity. You've got to get it right, and employers have lots of responsibilities and regulatory burdens on their back. I I understand that. But I also think um, presenteeism is a real problem where people show up for work but are so unfocused because of other responsibilities are not as productive as they could be. And, um, you know, we use family and medical leave for other things like, um, you know, like childbirth. And I think figuring out logical ways to extend it would make lots of sense to support caregiving. So, And then, then the last thing, and I'll, then I'll quit, I promise, is um, I, I think we have to recognize that long t- for those of us who face really severe long-term care problems, um, the small percentage of us, uh, r- roughly 20%, that will need five or more years of serious long-term care, there isn't really a way to pay for that right now. And there really isn't an insurance product for, right that, for that right now. And that families face potentially catastrophic economic challenges paying for that. And I, I do think that's a place where public policy could step in and develop better solutions. So for, the, for those of us that have been in the, in the aging business or the healthcare business for, for a while, um, that is the missing piece, that especially that the last one on the financing. Uh, there is a, a, a big misunderstanding that somehow Medicare pays for long-term care, and people don't realize that that is not the case and that there is no mechanism. We have no long-term care system in this country, which is kind of a big surprise when you look at the numbers of people who are going to need it. I completely agree. And I think it's a, one of the most important policy questions in front of us from a health and human services standpoint as a country. And our ability to, you know, to get that right is critical because, frankly, the, the, the most expensive um, and least person-centered uh, choice at this point is what we're doing right now, which is is just to not have any meaningful solution and let people think that Medicare will ultimately pay for it when they have that need, when in fact, as we've just discussed, um, Medicare won't be there in that way. And so, um, yes. I want to go back. I want to go back a few years to uh, when you worked on a uh, federal study on some of these very issues. But first, let me remind folks who may have just joined us: you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and our very special guest on our Caregiver SOS on air hotline, Dr. Bruce Chernoff, CEO of the Scan Foundation. Who, in 2013, Dr. Chernoff, you chaired the Federal Commission on Long-Term Care which produced a bipartisan report to Congress, recommended reforms for our nation's long-term care, delivery system, workforce needs, financing. How did that work out? So I, I think what, 
what the Long-Term Care Commission showed us, which I think is incredibly powerful, is that even in partisan times, you can make bipartisan progress. And uh, so for me, the fact that we had 26 recommendations with a majority of the Democratic and Republican appointees um, signing up is a very powerful message. I also think um, it reflects the fact that aging doesn't actually ask what party you um, you have uh, signed up for in your voter registration. Aging recognizes all political parties. It's something that we'll all face. When we look at the recommendations, given that these are difficult times, I'm really pleased to see that some of them have made progress. Um, there's been work around caregiving. Many states have uh, passed uh, legislation that improves caregiving. In the current, uh, just this year, um, uh, as part of the federal budget, uh, a key area around having Medicare begin to cover some home and community-based home and community -based services for a subset of adults who have pretty significant needs. So this isn't just for everybody, but for those who have pretty significant needs is now a possibility, and we'll see if it gets offered in the next few years. So we're starting to see slowly um, some of the recommendations be acted on, um, and interest in, in the vast majority of them. The progress, for my taste, though, is just too slow. Um, we need to move more quickly as a country. So I have a curiosity question. Um, one of the issues that comes up is that if you are born with some sort of a, a, a cognitive disability, um, that there are programs for people who are born with a disability or acquire one at a young age. But when you, if you acquire Alzheimer's or some sort of dementia in later life, you are not qualified really for anything. Do you think we will come to identify dementia and these diseases that cause cognitive impairment as a disability that will ena you know, enable families to access services? Such a good and difficult question. I, 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 I honestly think I, 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 none of us predict the future. If you guys do, um, we should we should plan a card game after this after uh, your radio session is over. Um, I mean, does that but, come up in the conversation? Does that do people are people thinking seriously about this yet? I think people. You know, you you'll hear people raise it as an issue, but I think um, we don't have either. Uh, an economic um, or a policy framework to handle needs that way, and so while I, I, you know, I think we, I absolutely think we need a more comprehensive approach. Um, I just think that there's a lot of work to be done till we uh, before we get there, and I, I don't see, at least in the very immediate term, the the, the sort of uh, disability framework that you've been describing just being picked up wholesale and applied uh, to Alzheimer's. One of the other things that sort of intrigues me about Alzheimer's, um, having been a practicing doctor for a long time, um, I, you know, I, I, I began my career when the um, AIDS and HIV epidemic um, uh, sort of exploded on the scene. And, you know, it just sort of seemed like this endless illness for which there were very few treatments and very poor outcomes. And then suddenly a whole new generation of medications came along and it changed the trajectory of that illness. And, and I, it's just been so frustrating that with Alzheimer's, I think we've seen this sort of long trudge uh, to trying to find a treatment and, and really having not done that successfully yet. 
But my gut tells me that in the next, you know, five years, maybe it's longer. This is where I'm guessing the future. Um, there will be a dramatic treatment, and it will fundamentally change the course of the disease. Um, well, I hope so. I'm 76. Say, we will we'll, we'll take the cure yeah. for Alzheimer's we want versus, the cure. Pop versus care for Alzheimer's. That <laughs> exactly. would be fine. Yeah. And we, we have to, uh, unfortunately, we have to stop you right here, oh. uh, Dr. Chernoff. You've been a great guest. and We will have to have you back because there's we more, will. more to discuss. We would love to have you back, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Uh, we, I'd be glad to come back anytime. This has been a wonderful discussion. So if people want to find out about the Do You Give a Care campaign for millennials, where do they go? Uh, so you can find us on all of your favorite social media, so Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can go to the SCAN Foundation website at www.thescanfoundation.org to get more information. Cool. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Dr. Bruce Chernoff. She's Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman right here on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to... Well, I'm at radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. We're so pleased you stuck with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. At the end of each and every one of our programs, we bring you Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist and expert on addictions and caregiving as well. I'm Ron Aaron, and our co-host Carol Zerniel joins us too. And one of the things we wanted to talk about, Carol, is... The unexpected caregiver. So, so Jamie, you know, sometimes caregiving starts with a phone call at 2 o'clock in the morning and it's mom has fallen. Um, it's some rush to the hospital. It's something unexpected. And from there, you know, you're on, you're, you're not, you didn't just get to, to meander onto the caregiving path. You got thrown on the highway uh, right in the thick of traffic. And so, you know, when caregiving is unexpected, what is the reaction? You know, what, when something's this big of a surprise and life-changing, what happens to us? Well, a whole lot does. It actually challenges everything in our lives in terms of our own self-care, our own introspection, our own ability to be resilient. Um, literally, if our feet aren't on the ground, this is going to be like a two-by-four with a rusty nail that hits us and all of a sudden throws our entire life uh, out, of, out of kilter. Well, I mean, it, there's, you know, is, is, it, is it like, um, you know, the Kubler-Ross uh, stages of grief? I mean, are we going to be angry, mad, denial? Are we going to get hit with all of these negative emotions? 
No doubt. Uh, that is kind of grieving. And let's face it, when you take care of a loved one with a chronic or terminal illness who we do love, there is a, some unexpected subconscious grieving that goes along in the process. But to be perfectly frank with you, it's probably never going to be that simple. I mean, as soon as you get hit with it, all of a sudden you're shouldering a huge burden of responsibility, uh, expenses, your, your entire family trying to get together. And we all know what that's like. Families have, have been apart for a long time. So literally, this is something that has to be planned for. That's the beauty of, I think, your topic today, is that we don't have to be unexpected caregiving. Let's face it, what Rosalind Carter was clear about saying, you're either going to be one today, you'll be one tomorrow, you'll get care today, or you'll get care tomorrow. But nobody escapes this world without some experience in caregiving. So let's plan for it. Now, is the reaction different among uh, seniors who become a caregiver for a loved one versus millennials who end up caregiving perhaps for their parents or a brother or a sister or a grandma or grandpa? Well, I don't think there's a doubt about that. Let's face it. When you're talking seniors taking care of loved ones, we're talking about somebody who already has complications, possibly challenges, medical issues going on, along, and they've been with their loved one for, for many, many, many years. This, this feeling of about, you know, detachment, I'm not going to be with my loved one, or my role has changed from a husband and wife to now that of caregiving, that's a real-life situation which, which really throws a senior off course and off kilter. And they then sometimes forget about themselves and jump into it. When you talk about the millennial, that's a whole other cultural issue. I mean, let's face it. I mean, there's a lot of self-engrossment. Nobody really understands caregiving in the millennial world, I don't think, unless it hits them uh, in their own family life. And so they're very, very unprepared. So our research with the stress-busting program, Dr. Sharon Lewis, uh, um, her research talks about the difference between, like, spousal caregiving and children who are caregivers who, who could be younger. And the research shows that, you know, sons and daughters who are caring for older parents or grandparents are more stressed out, more angry, have more anxiety than someone who is a spousal caregiver. That's not surprising to me. I'm sure it's not surprising to any of our listeners. Let's face it. It's not something you would expect at that age. And all of a sudden, it seems to be the quote-unquote imposition. And if you don't have a lot of awareness and you haven't really looked at your life and transformed it and dealt with a lot of the issues in childhood, which millennials, of course, have not yet, they've kind of been on a glide path, then this is going to be a tremendous rude awakening. And there'll be resentment. And, of course, there'll be expectations. And there'll There'll be all that fear and anxiety of what do I do now? Well, and, you know, there's um, the, the unexpectedness or, or the complications of being a younger caregiver where you maybe have kids in school or you're holding down your first big job. Um, you know, your, uh, your other friends are not caregivers. You're out of sync with your crowd. You have other responsibilities. So, you know, that oh. you, you are the sandwich. And that's an old oh, term, but, it's, but it can mean many, uh, many different things besides just raising kids and raising your parents. Well, you're the club sandwich. I mean, you're 100% right. I mean, the unexpected <laughs> caregivers, I mean, truly, I mean, this is now what we're looking at with a longer time we're on earth here and, and, and living with medical, you know, research advancing. I mean, young, under 18, you're developing, you're developing your life, your bodies, you're, you're, you know, you're busy making yourself kind of attractive for the next, you know, person you meet. You don't really have the value of money. Um, caregiving is an extraordinarily expensive process sometimes. And, and one of great sacrifice. And sacrifice, if you know the word of that, is giving up something sacred. So, you know, those millennials and those certainly under 18 are, are not necessarily in that boat. 
He's Dr. Jamie Heisman, psychotherapist and expert on caregiving and addictions. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here. If you just joined us on 930 AM, The Answer, this is Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air. So if if you find yourself... Um, an unexpected caregiver on a path you didn't know even existed or certainly didn't think you were going to be there that soon, you know, um, how do you get sort of get your house in order? What are the things that we should do um, to give us the best chance of success? Well, now that you look at millennials and you look at the older population, and then we now have to see what's the common denominator here. We need somebody, no matter what age we are, who gets it. Uh, a geriatric care manager, if you will. Somebody uh, like yourself, Carol, is in gerontology. Somebody who understands the entire world of caregiving, of growing older, uh, of, of really self-care. All of that in one. We, we, we really can't come to this through osmosis. This sounds much like an un- unexpected parent, if you will. Those who find themselves with a curveball in life and find themselves going to become a parent. What do you do? You immediately go to an expert, I believe, and you literally sit with them and sit with those fears, sit with those anxieties, sit with those tears, all the issues of unexpected sort of caregiving that that pop up, and share it with somebody who gets it, who can actually be our guide, who can literally lay out a blueprint for us. I think that's the first thing we do. And where would someone find that kind of helper? They're all over, Ron. Maybe one of the most growing industries we have today is the geriatric care manager. They're clinical social workers. They're nurses. Uh, they're, you know, they can be, of course, people who are ex- extremely good in coach in caregiving and coaching. But my first uh, uh, recommendation to our listening audience again would be go to psychologytoday.com, and of course, Carol's going to mention I'm sure eldercare.gov, which is important. But Psychology Today allows you to put your zip code in allows you to look who is skilled in the world of geriatrics or seniors or, or caregiving and allows you to look at vitas and pictures and pick up the phone and call them and actually connect with them about who you are and go to the one you feel most comfortable with. Now, is it something a PCP could recommend as well, primary care physician? I would hope that they would, and Carol is really in the and the Wellmet Charitable Foundation is really in the vanguard of that. I'm sure Carol, you can give great experience here of how receptive uh, your primary caregivers are to be in that role to make that recommendation. Well, you know, I think it, it really depends on your primary care physician. I mean, we're in a kind of a transitional phase here in healthcare where there's a growing recognition that caregiving is an issue, but a lot of times it's not the physician who's going to know what the resources is or are the resources are how about that word um so you know i i I agree with you jamie and i think geriatric care manager is a big expensive sounding scary kind of word but what i would encourage folks to 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 think about is number one is you know if you do pay a professional a couple of hours that you pay a geriatric care manager to walk you through that checklist is money well spent. It's like money with a really good attorney to get all your documents. That's money well spent. But there are also support groups where you can get really good advice from other caregivers that are not going to cost you. So if you can't do the geriatric care manager, you definitely want to find a support group, your area agency on aging, um, and they have case management. You may have to wait to get in to talk with them, but there are some other resources. Jamie, we've got about 15 seconds. You get the last word. 
Well, I just want to emphasize exactly what uh, Carol said, access, access, access. A geriatric care manager is a clinical social worker or nurse, and literally they're on your health care plan as well. Make the, the investment, and as Carol says, it will save you an infinite amount of dollars ahead. Perfect. And time and, 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 okay. Thank you. Dr. Jamie, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. You've been listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The answer will catch you Sundays at 6 p.m. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.